This is our fourth time here, isn't it? One, two, three. The first time um, was just kind of unorganized. We didn't really know what we were doing. The second year, um, I started to do a biographical sketch on Saturday night, and Pastor Jerome started to preach on Sunday morning. In the first year, I talked about George Whitfield. Second year, we talked about George Mueller. But this third year, we're not talking about a George. It's a different person. <laughs> Um, in fact, it might be someone that you don't know anything about. The, the person's name is Amy Carmichael. How many people know about Amy Carmichael's life? Okay, Debbie does, Judy, Pastor Jerome. Um, I thought it would be nice for a change to have a female as one of the heroes of the faith that the women could look up to because I think you can look up to her life. There, there's much to commend. There's much to admire about her. So let's, let's start with prayer before we get into it. <coughs> Lord, would you please give us a heart to really see the spiritual in this woman's life and that which is worthy of our imitation. We pray, Lord, that this would be more than just a history lesson. We pray it would be inspiring to us. And so come now and minister to your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So Amy Carmichael was born in 1867 and she died in 1951. And I was a little surprised when I thought about that because I was born in 1959. If I had been born eight years earlier, I would have been contemporary with this person. I, I think of her usually as being way in the past, but it really wasn't that far in the past. She was born in Northern Ireland. Uh, she was born into a Christian home. Her parents were devout Christians. She attended an Irish Presbyterian church growing up. And this was a great blessing to her because she grew up hearing the gospel week after week. Her parents prayed with her and for her. Her parents were encouraging her in the things of God as she, as she grew. She would be learning discipline and scripture from an early age. And one of her earliest memories was for her praying that God would change the color of her eyes. When she was a real little girl, her parents told her that God hears and answers prayer. And she didn't like brown eyes. She wanted blue eyes. So before she went to bed, she prayed fervently as a little girl that the Lord would change the color of her eyes. And then she went to sleep. And as soon as she woke up, she jumped out of bed and she ran to the mirror and looked in the mirror to see her new blue eyes. And they were brown. And she was so disappointed until her parents pointed out to her, the Lord really did answer your prayer, Amy. But this time his answer was no. And later on in her life, she's going to be very, very happy that the Lord said no, because it's going to help her reach people that she would never be able to reach if she had blue eyes. Um, she was the oldest of seven children. There were four boys in the family and three girls. Her parents were David and Catherine Carmichael. They were well off. The family was not impoverished. They had money. The, the family owned a flower business. And so they had more money than the average person. Um, her personality. In her writings later on, she would refer, refer to herself as the wild bird child. And she was a spirited, lively young girl. She was a natural born leader with a knack for adventure. And what I see in her life is that the Lord was wise to choose a person with this natural personality. Because Amy needed to be a natural born leader to accomplish her work and she needed to have a knack for adventure. 
because she was going to face a lot of adventure during her lifetime. Let's talk about her conversion and her early Christian life for a few minutes. When she was 12 years old, because her parents could afford it, they sent her to a a girl's boarding school over in England. And so she was there for several years. When she was about 15 years old, she gave her life to Christ. And we don't know too much of the specifics around her, her conversion, but later on in her life she wrote this, In His great mercy, the Good Shepherd answered the prayers of my mother and father and many other loving ones and drew me, even me, to Christ. So she, you can see the sense of uh, wonderment that God would draw even her to the Lord. Her early Christian life, when she was only 17 years old, her father died. And her father was only 54 years old, so he wasn't that old. She loved her father deeply, and this was an extremely difficult trial in her life. Soon after that, her, her conversion, she really started to change. And you saw this new creature coming out in her young uh, adolescent years. And she describes an experience in her life between the ages of maybe 15 and 18. We're not quite sure exactly when it happened. But she says this was a life-changing experience for her. And I'm just going to read it. This is what she wrote about it. It was a dull Sunday morning in a street in Belfast. My brothers and sisters and I were returning with our mother from church when we met a poor, pathetic old woman who was carrying a heavy bundle. And moved by sudden pity, my brothers and I turned with her, relieved her of the bundle, took her by her arms as though they had been handles, and helped her along. This meant facing all the respectable people who were, like ourselves, on their way home. It was a horrid moment. We were only two boys and a girl, and not at all exalted Christians. Just as we passed a fountain, recently built near the curbstone, this mighty phrase was suddenly flashed, as it were, through the gray drizzle. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be declared by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, he shall receive a reward. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. The fountain, the muddy street, the people with their politely surprised faces. All this I saw, but saw nothing else. The blinding flash had come and gone. The ordinary was all about us. We went on. I said nothing to anyone, but I knew that something had happened that had changed life's values. Nothing could ever matter again but the things that were eternal. So it appeared that to Amy, this was an audible voice because when she heard these words, and what all she's hearing is Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, she's hearing the words of Scripture, and she turns around to find who's talking to her, who's preaching, who's telling her about wood, hay, and stubble, gold, precious stones, and she can't find anyone. And so there, there were a couple of times in her life that are recorded where she, it was as though, if it wasn't audible, it was so powerful within her mind that it was just like hearing a voice outside of herself. And God used this one as a life-transforming experience because he wanted her to have eyes for eternity and to be used not just in this life, but in the, in the life to come. So she quickly threw herself into the service of Christ. And this is the part of her life that I really found fascinating. So as a, a young girl, 
16, 17 years old, she starts to gather the children in her neighborhood and she invites them over to her house. Um, she has something called the morning watch. Every Saturday morning, all the kids would come over and the purpose of this gathering was to encourage the boys and girls to be disciplined to spend time in God's word and prayer every day. So she would hand out these pledge cards and she'd say, all, all of you who want to make a pledge to to pray to God every day and to spend time in the Word. Sign these cards because we're going to do this together. You know? So you can see this, this fervency and this zeal for the Lord just as a young Christian in her life. She held weekly prayer meetings for school, go- school girls in their homes. And in this Presbyterian church that she attended, she started a class for shawlies. Now you probably don't know what a shawlie is because I didn't know what a shawlie was. A shawlie was a girl who was too bored to buy a hat and so they put a shawl over their head because they couldn't afford to buy a hat. These are the poor girls that worked in the mills 14 hours a day for very low wages, very poor conditions and Amy just had a burden for these poor girls which is something that is interesting about her life because through her entire life she has a burden for children and God uses her to reach children for the rest of her life and it starts with her conversion. And so what does she do? She starts inviting these shawlies. She goes into the, the slums and the poor neighborhoods and knocks on doors and talks to the kids and says, hey, would you like to come to church? Come with me to church. And what happens is that dozens and then hundreds of these shawlie girls start attending her Presbyterian church. And what do you think the respectable people of the church start feeling about that? They're very uncomfortable. They're, they're dressed shabbily. They're dressed poorly. I mean, it was, it's, very, it's, a, it's a very negative Christian example that they're portraying here, but that's how they felt. They felt uncomfortable with all these poor girls coming in. And they started to complain to the pastor. Well, the pastor sympathized with her cause. He really did have a heart for these kids too. But it became apparent that there just wasn't room in the church building for all these shawlies that were coming in and the regular church members. And so Amy started to pray with her girls that the Lord would give them another place to meet. They needed a place that would seat about 500 people. That's how many girls were coming. So isn't that amazing? That one girl could start gathering dozens and then hundreds of these poor girls to come learn about the gospel. And so she started to pray. And she learned about this steel building that could feed, seat 500 people, but it cost 500 pounds. And to Amy, that was a fortune. She didn't have any idea where she'd ever come up with 500 pounds to pay for this building. But she prayed about it, and the girls prayed about it. And she just happened, she was going with her mother one day to tea, to talk to this other woman, which that was kind of a custom in those days. And Amy hated the, the ritual of going around to have tea, but she did it for the sake of her mom. And while she was there, the woman asked Amy, so what are you doing these days? And so Amy just poured out. She was so excited about the Shawley girls coming to Christ. And she says, yeah, I, want, I found this building, this steel building that can seat 500 people and it's 500 pounds and we're, we're praying that the Lord would give it to us. And wouldn't you know, the Lord put it on the heart of that woman that she was talking to to pay 500 pounds. She happened to be a wealthy woman. She paid for the whole thing. And then she found a business owner who is willing to take a piece of his land and just let them put the building on the land so that they could come and meet there. And the cool thing is that there's a church in that building to this day, all these years later.
they called it the welcome. That was what it was called, the welcome. But most people called it the tin tabernacle. And she was 20 years old when that church actually got started. So if she was converted at 15, she's, she's been five years old in the Lord and she's planted a church and there's 500 girls in it. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. She started going around and visiting the poor slums there in Belfast. There was a chaplain of the Belfast City Missions that would go around and give out food to the homeless and the hurting. And so she had a heart for those people, so she went around with him. And then somebody found out about the work she was doing. Somebody in Manchester, England. Remember, she's in Ireland. And this person asked her if she would come over to England and start a work just like what she had done in Ireland. She prayed about it and felt like that was the will of God. And so she moved. And her mother moved with her. At this point, her father's dead. <coughs> they were wealthy, but all the, all the money is gone because of an economic depression that has hit the land. And so they're poor now. And the mother goes with Amy and finds a job in Manchester. And Amy begins to minister again in the slums of Manchester. It's rat-infested cockroaches on the floor and she decided that she wanted to live in the same kind of conditions that they did because she needed to find out if she could really have joy and peace and fulfillment from her relationship to Christ because she was telling the Shawley girls you can have joy and peace in Christ but she needed to find out can I do it can I find it even if I live in these deplorable conditions so she moved in and she lived there for some time before getting very very sick she got neuralgia, and I've never heard of that before, but it's a condition where the nerves are affected really badly, and it's very painful. And a lot of times you get very bad headaches from, from neuralgia. She, she got neuralgia, and she had to convalesce somewhere she, in order to just recuperate from this disease. She didn't know where to go, but the family had made a friendship with a man by the name of Robert Wilson. Robert Wilson had founded what's known as the Keswick Convention. Has anyone ever heard of the Keswick Convention? It was a movement over in the British, um, British Isles. Uh, the Deeper Life Movement, they talked a lot about personal holiness. Hudson Taylor uh, would sometimes come back from his missionary endeavors and he would speak at these conventions. And so Robert Wilson, who was the founder of those, was a family friend. And he was wealthy. He owned a brick making company and a mine and so he was a wealthy man he had a pretty much a mansion he called it the the Bruton Grange was the name of his house had 11 bedrooms in it and he was one man he had two sons that were that were grown up and were bachelors so three people lived in this gigantic house his wife had recently died and his daughter had died at the same age that Amy was now and so he asked, could Amy come and convalesce in my home, and I would like to make her sort of my adopted daughter. And Amy's mother agreed, and so she moved in with Robert Wilson. By the way, uh, the children called Robert Wilson the D-O-M, which means the dear old man. So they, they loved him a lot, and that was their pet name for him. He was 65 years old. Amy was like 21, 22 years old at this time. So she moved in. He knew a lot about missions, and he began to talk to Amy about foreign missions, and Amy's heart began to be stirred by all of the, 
the, the perishing masses all throughout the world who had never heard the gospel. She had heard Hudson Taylor speak at one of these Keswick convention meetings, and her heart was stirred at so many people that were dying without Christ. And it wasn't too long before the Lord had called her, put a call on her life. But before we get to that, let's think of a couple lessons that we can already start drawing from Amy's life. Uh, the first one is this burden for kids that she had really early on in her Christian life. I think sometimes God places a special calling or a special burden on certain people because he has a special work he wants them to do. And so don't think it's strange if the Lord may do that to you. Give you a special, uh, just desire to reach a, a, a group of people. The other one I see about her is that Amy didn't wait to become a missionary before she started to serve the Lord. She had thrown herself with, without any abandon into the work of the Lord. Now, what can a girl of 17 years old do for the Lord? Well, she can go around knock on doors and talk to neighbor children, invite them over, share the gospel. You don't have to be a preacher to do that. So she did what she could do, which is a great lesson for us. If you feel like God might be calling you to be a missionary, don't wait till you get to the mission field. Start right now and see if God gives you success in your work for Christ here and now. That's one of the evidences of whether he's going to call you someplace else. Start serving him in whatever way you can, whatever gifts you have right now. Okay, third phase of her life is her missionary service. On January 13, 1892, so she's about 25 years old, she heard these words, Go ye. That was it. Two words. Go ye. And these words kept coming back to her again and again. And she knew God was calling her to be a missionary. She just had that inner sense. She couldn't escape it, but she didn't feel like she would have the strength to make this decision, even though she believed it was the will of God, because it meant bringing heartache and hardship to the two most important people in her life, which is her mother, who is widowed, and Robert Wilson, the DOM, because it would mean moving out of his life again. And he was an old, lonely man, and she knew how much her presence meant to both of them, and so she was struggling with this decision. But she felt she had no other option. She had no other choice, because the Lord made it so compelling to her. And so she wrote a letter to her mother. She said, Mother, I feel as if I had been stabbing someone I love. And through all the pain, the certainty that it was his voice I heard has never wavered. Though I just feel one big ache all over, yet the certainty is there. He said to me, Go. And I answered, Yes, Lord. And her mother returned her with this letter. He has lent you to me all these years. So when he asks you now to go away from within my reach, can I say nay? No, no, Amy. He is yours. You are his. I can trust you to him. And I do. So she was a very devout woman and she, she gave her daughter into full-time missionary service. She didn't know where that was going to take her daughter, but she knew it was going to be far away from home. So the Keswick Convention decided that they would sponsor Amy as their very first missionary. So they were going to support her and send her. And so she began to think, where can I go? The Lord said, go you, but I don't know where that is. And she thought of Hudson Taylor, who had founded the China Inland Mission. And so she applied there. And they accepted her. 
So she got her bags packed, she was ready to go, but then the mission doctor, uh, or he, he gave her an examination to see whether she was fit for missionary service, and he said, no, you're not. He declined her, and that was a huge disappointment in her life. So she, th she didn't know what to do. God said, go. The doctor said, you can't go. What do I do? So she was in a state of confusion for a while, but then she heard about another evangelistic mission in Japan. It was called the Japanese Evangelistic Band. And without even, she felt sure that they were going to accept her. So without even waiting for approval from them, she just took off and went. So, so get this, she's 26 years old. She's a woman. She's single. She has no chaperone. Nobody's going with her. She gets on a boat and she heads for Japan. She doesn't know the language. She doesn't know the culture. She doesn't know anything. She just knows that God told her, go ye. So she's going. <laughs> and she gets on that ship. And the cool thing is there's a story related about all of this that she actually led the ship captain to Christ on the way to Japan. <laughs> They're having Bible studies on the ship. So she's just on fire for the Lord. She's in Japan 15 months. This is not going to be her final destination, but she's learning some valuable lessons that she's going to need when she finally gets to her final destination, which is India. But there in Japan, she learned some really valuable lessons. Number one, when she got there, she was told that the best way to evangelize the Japanese girls is to hold classes in embroidery and sewing and give them a real mild dose of the gospel but try to attract them through other things and she said I would rather have two who came in earnest than 100 who came to play we have no time to play with souls like this it is not by ceremonial tea making and flower arranging not by wood chrysanthemum making and foreign sewing learning but by my spirit saith the Lord so you, you get a little bit of the, the flavor of her, her strong will don't you and her zeal to reach people for Christ one day she was witnessing through an interpreter to a Japanese woman and Amy like all the foreign missionaries wore European dress and of course they wore their native dress and Amy is there in her European dress and she has these fur, fur gloves on. And she's sharing the gospel through the interpreter and they're getting really close and the woman seems interested. And Amy goes, just, she's thinking she's going to come to Christ, I just know it. But then the Japanese woman asked her a question about her fur gloves. And they could never get the conversation back to the gospel at that point. And Amy was so just disappointed and disgusted with herself that she, she vowed she would never wear foreign dress again. She started adopting the Japanese dress. She do, wouldn't wear fur gloves. <laughs> she wouldn't wear the overcoats like they did in Europe. She dressed just like the Japanese because she didn't want anything to be a stumbling block and get in the way of her being able to present Christ. It was also popular amongst missionaries to use pictures when they witnessed to people about Christ. And Amy disagreed with that whole method. She refused to show pictures. Uh, some of the people that she used these pictures to actually thought the pictures were gods. That was one of the reasons she wouldn't use them. And she believed the church resorted to pictures rather than scripture only when the church's power was gone. So she used the word of God and she preached through an interpreter to people. But she got really sick again. And this is a recurring theme throughout her life. She had a, a weak constitution. 
she got very sick and the doctor told her that the only way that she could survive and keep on going was she should go to the mission in China and just rest and recuperate until she was fully fit again. So she did. She sailed for Shanghai. She was there a week resting and re recuperating and after a week she said her headache was gone, she was feeling better and she noticed that there was a boat heading for Sri Lanka. And she wasn't the type of person just to sit on her laurels and wait around and have a vacation. <laughs> she wanted to do the will of God. She wanted to do the work of God. And so what'd she do? She got on the boat. She figured, well, if Japan is not a good place for me, if, if the uh, environment and the weather is not good, maybe Sri Lanka will be better. <laughs> so she got on the ship and headed to Sri Lanka. After a while there, she received word that Robert Wilson, the DOM, had had a stroke and was asking for her. And so she made the trip back from Sri Lanka all the way to England. And she was very weak. It took her a week of resting just to be able to have the strength to make the trip to his house. And so she was recuperating. It was uh, a few months there at his home. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know if she should stay in Sri Lanka. She knew Japan didn't work out. And she's saying, Lord, you called me to go. Where do I go? And she heard about this group. Uh, it was the Church of England, and it was called the Zanana Missionary Society. And they had missions going in India. And she decided that she would offer her services to this missionary society and see if they accepted her. Well, they did. And so on October 11th, 1895, so she's 28 years old, she takes off for India, and she will never return. She will be there for 57 years without a furlough. That becomes her new home for the rest of her life. Now, what, do we, what lesson do we learn up to this point about her? Do you notice God said go, but he didn't tell her where? And so she stumbles around for a while trying to figure out where to go. She finally figures it out. But at the early part, she doesn't know. And God kind of steers her here and steers her there, and then she finally finds it. And uh, there was a time in our life where that was happening. I felt called to be a pastor, but didn't know where to go. And we, we knew there was this little group of people in Hayward that wanted a Bible study. So we ended up moving from Fresno to Hayward. But after one year there, God redirected us to Milpitas. And I spent 10 years there as a pastor. God kind of uses a carrot sometimes to get you going. It may not be the final destination, but he's, he's going to use that in his, his own end result for your life. So be open. And don't be totally disappointed if the first thing doesn't work out for you. Just be happy that you're moving <laughs> and that God is directing. So she ends up in, in India. And one of the first things she discovers is the state of nominal Christianity in India. She's appalled by it. It's widespread. She found professing Christians who didn't possess a Bible, who didn't read a Bible, they did no Christian work at all unless they were paid to do it. They didn't understand the gospel better than the heathen. And she wrote, the saddest thing one meets is a nominal Christian. India was full of them. Remember, India was British ruled at this time. So the Britons, the English had flooded in and their influence was everywhere. The second thing she saw in India was the caste system. And this is a system... Um, this is prevalent in India where you've got these various caste levels. And whatever caste you're born into is where you stay for your whole life. You can't leave it. You can't break out of it. It's, it's really a sad situation. If you're born in the very lowest level, 
you're doomed to stay at that level for the rest of your life. You can't associate with or talk to or mingle with anybody from any other caste. So she saw this going on. Women suffered the most in the caste system. In the majority of cases, they remained servants for life. And even in death, there was a tradition called the Suti tradition. And it required that if her husband were to die before she did, if she was a true faithful wife, she would show her faithfulness to him by being burnt alive with him on his funeral pyre. So as he's being cremated, she would cast herself on top of those flames so that she could be burned with him and they could go die together. And Amy actually saw this happen when she was in India. And the caste system was really, really terrible. Uh, there was a situation once when a baby in her care needed to be breastfed, but there was no mother. She finally found a woman willing to feed that child, but the woman was from a different caste than the baby. But she did it anyway. She was willing to break caste and feed the child, but when the woman's husband found out, that she had been doing this, he poisoned her and killed her. And that was considered acceptable. If you broke caste, it was acceptable to do anything to that person. That's how severely that's treated. She also met a mother who preferred to see her infant die than to break caste by allowing Amy to give the child hospital care. So it was life or death, this whole caste system. Eventually she met another missionary by the name of Thomas Walker. He was a missionary who had a heart for the lost and he was fluent in the language. The language is called Tamil. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's T-A-M-I-L, Tamil. And so when Amy met him, she asked him if he would tutor her so that she could learn the language. And he was willing to do that and they began teaming up. Thomas Walker had this itinerant band of men who would travel from village to village on these bandy carts, which is like, it's kind of like the wagons that were here in America going across from the east coast to the west coast. Uh, the ox, well, it was kind of like that. You'd have these oxen that would pull this bandy cart along. There's no springs. It's very uncomfortable. And the Hindu people of the villages would not take in Amy or her, her, her women because they were Christians. And so all they could do is just camp along the side of the road. So it was a very difficult life, but they had such a heart to try to reach these people for Christ that they did it anyways. And they had a name for themselves. They, they called themselves the Starry Cluster from Daniel 12 verse 3. That those who turn many to righteousness are like the stars. So they called them, we're the Starry Cluster. We're going to turn many to righteousness. So Amy and her girls would go and they would preach to the women and children and Thomas Walker would take his men and they would preach to the men and they're traveling around India preaching the gospel to people who had never heard it. But something changed in 1901 that would change the direction of her life. A seven-year-old girl by the name of Prina escaped from where she lived. She lived in a temple. She was called a temple girl. There was such a thing as temple women this sounds really bizarre to us, but in that place and in that day, if someone was so destitute that they couldn't survive, they sometimes would take their children, their girls, and they would dedicate them to a temple. 
and they would be paid for this so it was a way of them surviving sometimes they also if they wanted to make a vow to the gods they would take their daughter and give their daughter to the temple but basically these girls were raised in the temple and became temple prostitutes so it was it was a system from which they couldn't escape for the rest of their life they would be used in the name of their God uh, to serve the interests of men's sexual lusts bringing in money for the temple and Prina was one of those girls and she hated living in the temple and she escaped once before and she walked 25 miles back home but the temple women found her came to her hometown found her and brought her back and it's like she was a slave there in the temple one day she decided she was going to try again now the, the temple had these big wooden doors that were they separated the outside world from the temple and they were always locked but she decided she had to get out and so she pushed against these wooden doors a little seven-year-old and they opened they just happened to be unlocked that day and she was able to get outside and she started walking and somehow he, she had heard about this woman uh, that preached about this Jesus and she was interested about it and so she walked and walked she found a woman by the side of the road and she said can you help me I know there's this woman who talks about Jesus can you help me find her and this woman brought a uh, Prina um, and Amy was supposed to be gone on one of her evangelistic preaching tours but she had come back early unexpectedly she's there sitting on her porch drinking a cup of chota which is their tea early in the morning and Prina sees her and she runs and she dashes and she flings her arms around her and she says you are my Amma I will never leave <laughs> now uh, Amma in the Tamil language means mother and so she's saying you are my mother from now on I will never leave you this is I'll read you the story here this is from the words of Prina our precious Amma was having her morning chota when she saw me the first thing she did was to put me on her lap and kiss me I thought my mother used to put me on her lap and kiss me who is this person who kisses me like my mother from that day she became my mother she became the first girl that Amy rescued but there were more Amy didn't know this when she went to India but God was going to change the course from itinerant evangelism to rescuing girls that were dedicated to a life of temple prostitute-ism or whatever you would call that prostitution. prostitution there you go so by 1904 three years later there were 17 children living together six of them were former temporal temple children her preaching travels had to end up until 1904 she would just take all these girls with her they would get on the bandy cart and they would go and they would camp by the side of the road and then they would get on that cart and they'd drive to the next village and the girls watched Amy as she preached and <laughs> but after she started to get so many girls she just knew she couldn't continue doing this anymore either she had to stop evangelizing or she had to somehow send these girls away and she couldn't send the girls away so she decided that God was calling her to a, a different course of life and that was to to rescue these girls to raise them and to teach them about Jesus Christ and it didn't stop there the, the people around her the Hindus started calling her the child-catching Missy <laughs> God called her to be a, the full-time mother in 1918 a baby boy was brought to them this is the first time a boy was discovered 
And so they decided to keep the boy, and by 1926, they had a boys' compound with 70 to 80 boys, as well as all these girls that were showing up. Now, what I, what I learned about Amy's life is she starts off by thinking, okay, God has called me to preach the gospel and to be an itinerant missionary, an evangelist that preaches the gospel. And she does that, and she's faithful. And God crowns her labors with success. She has some converts. But God redirects her and shows her that it's not just preaching that God wants her to do. He also wants her to reach these little girls that are destined for a life of prostitution. And he wants Amy to raise them, not just talk to them once, but to disciple them by living with them and show them the gospel. Show them the love of God. And so she combines not only the spiritual in her ministry, but also the, the physical or the material. She combines the well-being, the physical well-being of these people with the message of Jesus Christ. And if, when, when we're able to do that, it's a powerful combination. Pastor Jerome always talks about a holistic gospel, and I think that's what we see in her life. It was holistic. She was caring for the whole person. The girl, not just the soul, but her body, her, her emotions, everything about her. Amy also adopted the native dress just like she did in Japan. She dressed just like the Indian women did. She would take coffee and she would darken her skin. And because she had dark brown hair and she had brown eyes, she could fit in. And she would go incognito into these temples to see if there were these little girls that were being raised to be temple prostitutes and try to see if she could uh, deliver them and snatch them out. So God was very wise when he didn't change the color of her eyes. <laughs> One of the philosophies of the missionaries at that time was to try to reach the highest caste, hoping that their influence would filter down through the rest, but it wasn't working. And so Amy didn't go for the highest class, she went for the lowest class. She was kind of like a Mother Teresa. She was going for the poor. She was going for the downtrodden. She was ministering to the worst. In 1927, up until that time, uh, the name of the, the location, the geographical location where Amy was ministering was called the Donover Nurseries. It was changed to Donover Fellowship. Donover was the name of the place. And it just continued to grow. They needed more nurseries because more children kept coming. They got a reputation for a place that would help girls who had nowhere else to go. And so these little babies would just be dropped on their doorstep and they would take them in and they'd start caring for them. By the 1940s, they had some 900 children and adults living in this one place. And this was their written purpose for the Donover Fellowship. To save children in moral danger to train them to serve others, to help the desolate and the suffering, to do anything that may be shown to be the will of our Heavenly Father in order to make known His love, especially to the people of India. Now, girls in that day in India grew up without an education, and Amy wanted to rectify that. So, to, when these, these girls that were living there, she became the teacher. And she started to teach him. And for her, the most important part about an education was character formation. And to her, the most important part about character formation was love. To show an example of real love. So one of the things she would do is she would go around and kiss every single girl goodnight. And these, they didn't know the birthdays of these children because you know they came, they came in and they didn't know when they were born. 
but they had uh, a coming day instead of a birthday. They knew the day that they had arrived, and so that became their coming day, and so it was like a birthday for all the children on that special day. And what about her personality? I'll read you a couple of excerpts from other people who describe Amy's personality. One wrote this, There was a lightness, a brightness, a joy about her. She was loving, lovely, and warm. Not much over five feet, I suspect, with gray hair, so this was when she was older, wearing a blue sari. She had a twinkle and a gentle sense of humor. Another one remembered her this way. She was happy-hearted, never gloomy, lively in worship, festive and rejoicing. She wanted joy, triumph, tambourines, even after burial. So when it says she was um, lively in worship, maybe she was like an early Pentecostal over in India, you know, a lively worshiper. This is what she told her people. When I go, ring the joy bells in the tower and sing all the most joyful songs of worship. It became apparent that they needed a hospital because there were terrible illnesses in India at that time and without a hospital and without medical doctors some of these babies began to die and it was just devastating to all of the people and so Amy said I just have to believe it's the will of God that we start a hospital and get some doctors to come here to treat people. Now how were they going to get a hospital you know (laughs) they had no money they had no savings Well, the same way that everything happened in her life. Remember the Ten Tabernacle. She prayed about it and God provided. She believed in the same thing that Hudson Taylor did. That she never, and George Mueller, she never solicited money from anybody, but she would ask people to pray. And she's sending letters back home to England and to Ireland and to, and she's a very gifted writer. So these letters are being put in books and they're being sent out across various places of the world. And she's actually becoming kind of famous even though she doesn't know it. And when she's told how many people know about her, she's embarrassed by that. But <laughs> she's actually becoming kind of famous just because of this gift of, of writing. And so people are hearing about the work there in India. And the Lord is stirring their hearts and they start sending money. And so when there's money that's over and above a present need, they say that's for the hospital. And they start saving it up. And within several years, they had built a hospital. And doctors had come from England to serve there in the hospital. She also ends up building a house of worship because she's taking her girls with her to the village church and there's so many of these girls going with her it's the same problem as back in Ireland there's no room for everybody and so the pastor kind of bluntly says you need to build your own house of worship we don't have room for all of you so she she actually went and did that they prayed God provided the money they built this big building and they had all worshiped together on Sundays when she was 63 years old and this is in 1931 something took place that would affect her for the rest of her life. She was inspecting a new facility. It was twilight. The construction workers had built this pit. They were, they were building a latrine. They put the pit in the wrong place. As she's walking around the grounds, it's kind of gloomy and dark. She ends up falling into the pit. She breaks her leg. She dislocates her ankle and she twists her spine. The doctors originally thought that she would recover, she'd be able to walk, everything would be fine, but she never did again. She could take a few steps here and there, but for the most 
most of the rest of her life, which is 20 years, she was bedridden. She spent about 20 years in bed. She was able to get up maybe for an hour or two, walk a little ways, but that was it. Before, she was just a, a flurry of activity, going around all the nurseries, directing the people here and there. And now, can you imagine what that would do to a person who loves to be active? This was, this was very, very difficult for her. But here's, here's the secret of how she survived it. She wrote this, You must never ask God why. To will what God wills brings peace. That those are profound words. God had willed, or this couldn't have happened, God had willed that this accident would take place. She recognized it, so she was, she was going to will what God willed, and she found peace in that. Now, do you think that she spent the rest of her life reading novels, eating bonbons? There's absolutely no way. She was, she was on fire for Christ. And so what'd she do? She spent time with God every day, in her bed. And when God spoke to her from the Word, she would write out this letter that would be taken around to all the different workers and all the different girls, and they would have this daily letter that would come from Amy, this sort of a spiritual uh, devotion that would be read to all of the children and all of the workers there. And eventually, the workers compiled all of these letters into books, and they became daily readings. Not only that, but she, she was already an author, but in those 20 years, she wrote 13 books. And some of her most powerful books were written while she was bedridden. She, con she stirred herself to continue serving the Lord any way she could. Remember, she started off as a girl by serving the Lord any way she could. She ended up the last 20 years in bed serving the Lord any way she could. She wanted her life to count, and she wasn't willing to let a little thing, like being bedridden, stop her from serving Christ. I love that spirit. Isn't that awesome? Well, she finally died in 1951. She did not want a big tombstone or she didn't want a lot of fanfare. She allowed a simple birdbath to mark the spot of her burial. There was one word on the birdbath. Can you guess what the word was? Ama. <laughs> they put the name mother in Tamil on the birdbath. They had the date of her birth and the date of her death, and that was it. Now, what was her legacy? What did she leave behind? What I love about this, she's just an ordinary person. She's, and she's a woman, you know, she might, because of scripture, she couldn't be a pastor. There are certain roles that were not uh, allowed to her, but she did what she could with her life. So what did she leave behind? Well, let me read a few quotes. And you can still get books by Amy Carmichael today and read them if you want to. I'll read a few of her quotes. She said, Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that'll burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. She said this, When I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything that I do be called sacrifice? She said, We have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. Uh, that, that's, that is... That's worthy of writing and memorizing. That's cool. We have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset, sunset to win them. In other words, give your life to the work of God while you can. She said, Can we follow the Savior far who have no wound or scar? 
She wrote 35 books in all, dozens of poems. She established the Welcome Hall as a 20-year-old girl in Belfast. She established the Starry Cluster. She rescued hundreds of children from a life of temple prostitution. She presided over the Donover Fellowship. And after her death, the Donover Fellowship still continued. It's continues today. Today there are 500 people that live on 400 acres. They have 16 nurseries and a hospital. And the goal of all who enter the hospital is that all patients and relatives should hear the gospel. So it's not just for their physical needs that this the hospital was developed. It was to preach the gospel to the patients too. Her two strongest character qualities were devotion to Christ and love for others. The welcome hall, the tin tabernacle, that's still going strong. You can go on the internet and you can uh, watch YouTube videos of the guy who pastors the church now. They're still reaching out to the city of Belfast. So I, I pray that her life will, will inspire and fire you up. We're all ordinary people too, aren't we? We're like an Amy Carmichael. But what can we do? Let's do what we can. Maybe we can't do the high, lofty, Maybe we'll not ever be famous or well-known like Billy Graham's, but we can do something for the kingdom. She learned early on that only that which is eternal truly matters. So let's give ourselves to the eternal.